Hey, y'all, quick note before we get started. This one is called How COVID Changed Hospitals, and we recorded it back in June of this year before the Delta variant. So please keep in mind as you listen, because there may be a few times it sounds like we're talking about COVID in the past tense. Even though a lot has changed since then, we still think the information Bill and Vince shared is relevant and can bring some value, and we didn't want you to miss it. Also, this is the last episode of this season. We're currently working on the next, and we'll be back soon with more Candid Conversations. All right, here's the episode. One of the things that I think COVID maybe pointed out in the bigger picture is, you know, healthcare is extremely rewarding, but it's not easy. And I'm not sure people always understood that part of it. And I think they do today. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Let's Talk Solutions, Candid Conversations with Healthcare Leaders. I'm Amy Fritzer, Director of Business Development for HHS. And I'm Becca Leaf, also Director of Business Development for HHS. This week, we discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has caused the healthcare landscape, both from large and small facilities, to drastically change. And hospitals have had to reevaluate their delivery of care, the patient experiences, and their finances. And today we're joined by Bill Caldwell, who's market CEO for Conamal Health, a system in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And then also Vince Sika, who is CEO of DeSoto Memorial Hospital, located in Arcadia, Florida. Both have a combined over 30 years experience in managing hospitals and systems, and so glad they're here today. Welcome, Bill and Vince. We appreciate you taking the time for joining us today. Let's go ahead and get started. We purposely wanted to choose to bring in two guests for this episode of the podcast to get a different perspective from both a larger facility system and a smaller one. And, um, you know, obviously, as previously mentioned, you both have extensive experience in healthcare. So would you mind both kind of introducing yourself and give us a little background into your healthcare experience? Sure, I'll start. Uh, Once again, Bill Caldwell with Conama Memorial Medical Center, Conama Health System in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Extensive background uh, from the not-for-profit to the for-profit side, uh, large hospitals in urban areas to smaller hospitals in what I would call semi-rural, and Johnstown's a great example, the city of Johnstown, and our primary service there is about 120,000, the city's about eh, 25,000, so it's a little bit more than just strictly a rural area, but becomes rural very quickly. Uh, once you get outside of the city of Johnstown. So uh, we're located about halfway between uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is the state capital, and uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, We're the only level one trauma center in that geography, uh, regional neonatal. Uh, I've been here about uh, almost three years now. So, And a lot of healthcare experience, I will tell you, no experience with the pandemic previously. Yeah. <laughs> well, good morning. I'm, I'm Vince Sika. I've been the CEO here at DeSoto Memorial Hospital since September of uh, 2006. Uh, we've seen a lot of changes. We're a small rural hospital. Uh, we're a 49-bed uh, sole community provider designated hospital. Uh, we're too close to the other, some other hospitals on the coast to get the designation as a critical access hospital. So uh, we're, uh, you know, 49 beds. It's uh, interesting. Uh, We're, you know, we're in a small community. Uh, There's about 35,000 people in the county, about 8,000 people in the city of Arcadia. 
Uh, during the winter, we have uh, a real uh, population of winter visitors that uh, come, and the mm. population is probably closer to 60,000. Wow. We have uh, you know, several RV parks and uh, people that come and stay the winter with us. Uh, typically, we have a lot of Canadian visitors, but we have obviously didn't uh, because of the pandemic and you know, I'm with uh, Bill and that, you know, I've not had experience with the pandemic other than I remember as a child getting my polio vaccine at a sugar yeah. tube at the local yeah. elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> my mom was telling me that exact same thing. You line up, have your hands yeah, exactly. out, and take the sugar cube. And I'm sure there was no record keeping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not like there is today, that's for sure. <laughs> Bill, did you have to do that too? Oh, yeah. I'm of that age where... You know, I can remember all the vaccines and the sugar cube. Actually, in terms, I mean, I hate needles, so the sugar cube was a great option. <laughs> yeah, especially for kids. I'm smart. Yeah. <laughs> so the first question I really have for y'all, you know, last year, the safety protocols took a very dramatic shift in terms of COVID. Are there some protocols that you have relaxed versus some that you think will really stick around forever as a change? I believe uh, I believe so. We're still screening everyone that's coming into the hospital, uh, you know, with the, the ask them the few questions and taking their temperatures. And uh, we've not opened our uh, main entrance yet. And we're in the process of getting ready to do that. You know, as in a small community, our our cafeteria was, uh, you know, a, a lot of people came to the hospital just to have lunch. Right. And during the pandemic, we we closed the the uh, cafeteria for you know for the outsiders, right. and then um, we've loosened it up a little bit so that if you're in the hospital getting uh, some sort of uh, procedure, and or you're visiting uh, someone in the hospital, you can go by the cafeteria. Uh, but you know, with regards to the utilization of PPEs and uh, you know, I think that that's that's with us to stay. I think those some of those are good practices that, you know, it's just a matter of time before we implemented them. And, you know, of course, now the issue is, do we have enough of them? And I think, uh, you know, they're moving, uh, moving in that direction. I know the, the style of the N95 mask has changed and there's a couple of different options. And so as we move forward, I think that, you know, that there's some good that's come out of it in terms of just uh, professional practice. So with the PPE events, when you say you think that's here to stay, do you just mean for staff or for visitors and, and you know, patients too? Uh, staff. Okay. I think staff, uh, especially when they're treating, you know, the staff in the patient care areas will probably continue to wear their N95 masks uh, when, whenever they're in a, uh, you know, treating a patient. And do y'all have visitors wearing masks still, or has that been? Limited? We do. We ask everybody that comes to the hospital to wear a mask. Gotcha. Mm. What about y'all, Bill? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, we've loosened up a little bit. Uh, we're not screening right now. It's on the honor system. We've got uh, the devices that can read uh, temperatures. So as staff or uh, visitors walk through, it's being recorded. Uh, that's worked pretty well. Uh, we still have all the restrictions around masking within the hospital patient care areas mm -hmm. and also in common areas like the, the cafeteria. Uh, 
you know, so I, I think some of those things will stay in place at least while from the regulatory side, at least within Pennsylvania, we're required to do so. But I do think there are some things, you know, that are lessons learned. And, you know, there's a reason we didn't have much of a flu season this year. Right. You know, and I think a lot of that goes back to just masking and, you know, reinforcing hand hygiene and social distancing. And, you know, while a lot of people struggle with those things outside of the hospital, uh, I think they do have a place on an ongoing basis within. Mm -hmm quick question is to follow up. So when we were kind of going through um, our previous conversations about this, um, you both had mentioned, um, and again, I'll just go back to Vince about how the protocols and stuff affected your facilities, you know, separately, obviously they're very different regions and different states and different sizes. And Vince, you had mentioned about being a smaller facility that you, you treated everybody as having COVID because your main concern was not only, of course, the patients, but your staff, right? And that's correct you know, staff members have to quarantine and things of that nature. And with you having be, being a smaller facility, if you had a significant portion of your staff be out for an extended period of time, that that would, you know, really affect, you know, the care there, right? Absolutely correct. And that was our biggest concern. And, you know, one of my pet peeves is that, and I'm sure Bill can say the same thing, is that, you know, we want to protect our staff the best that we can possibly can. And, you know, we encourage them to do what's right for them and their co-workers as well. So it's, you know, it's just sort of going hand in hand. But, you know, even, you know, normally, you know, with regards to just basic security, it's, you know, we always want to protect our staff to the best we can from any type of adverse event. Mm -hmm. Did y'all do that from the get-go events or did you start to see, you know, some people getting out sick and, and have like a reaction to no. it? We started it from the very beginning. We recognized that our staff was, uh, you know, uh, vulnerable. So we utilized uh, as many PPEs as we possibly could. You know, we got pretty creative in terms of uh, with when gowns become in short order, we started buying, uh, we found a source of uh, ponchos that, were, uh, uh, that we used uh, from, I, I believe, Amazon. And so we started using those as well to help supplement with our uh, gown shortage. But and then we, you know, we did ask the people to wear their N95s uh, more than just a day. You know, we kind of double mask with the N95 and then with a sort of throwaway paper mask uh, over the top of that for a long time. And Bill, did you, did you see anything like that too? Staff that, you know, had to be quarantined or be out or how did you combat that? We did. I mean, I think, you know, what was interesting is you know, we did a lot of contact tracing and symptoms mm. and all those things. You know, most of the contacts were outside of work, you mm. know, and there were a lot of challenges just around how people uh, would, I don't want to say behave, but I guess, you know, how they followed the appropriate protocols outside in terms of when they mask, where they, you know, socialize, that type of thing. But the quarantine was a significant challenge for us during the, the peak of COVID. You know, we were placed in the situation of having to pull in, say, registered nurses from non-bedside functions uh, to help on the floors, you know, case management and clinical informatics and places like that. Uh, at the height of COVID, which our primary surge was in late, eh, probably late November, through December and early January, 
you know, we'd have 120 to 130 people out at Connemo Memorial on any wow. given day. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and some of those were truly positive, but some of them were just through contact tracing. We had to hold them out. Yeah, preemptive, preventative. Yeah. yeah. Was somebody dedicated, do you have an employee dedicated to contact tracing? Was that their sole role? We did it through our employee health department. Okay. Uh, yeah, we've got on this campus, you know, over 2,300 employees. So, you know, we've got a couple full-time RNs in employee health and a part-time uh, physician. And they did most of the contact tracing to the extent they could. Right, right. We did the same thing. We did the... Uh contact tracing through our employee health nurse. We had, you know, and uh, as with Bill, you know, some of our worst situations where we had to quarantine people was, you know, people that got together outside of the, the hospital. With each other or with other like friends and family? Uh, both with each other and then bringing in some sort of outside source, you know. I think kid birthday yeah. parties in June and July were... Uh, you know, a problem sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. I feel like that one, you know, your employee re- in relation to the person that's tracking it has to really be up on all the gossip almost, you know, yeah. <laughs> who's friends with who, who hung out with who. That's very true. Some of it came pretty self-evident just based on who was calling in ill. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I never thought of that. <laughs> So you guys, I mean, obviously very different communities. And did you, Vince, did you have a peak season there at, at um, DeSoto Memorial? Or did, did you just kind of see it constant and consistent throughout? Well, uh, I, you know, I had to laugh because in June, July, and August, was uh, we were really uh, one of the higher uh, uh, percentage of positive uh, positivity rates. And, you know, they would show the map of Florida and there did be this little uh, red square that, no one ever heard of before, and that was DeSoto County. And, oh, uh, wow. So, you know, it wasn't anything we were proud of. And then, as Bill said, you know, right around Thanksgiving, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, December, you know, we had some real issues where we were in a, we got concerned about the number of people that were positive and the number of people we had in the hospital. Uh, we have some uh, correctional facilities in the area, and they had quite a outbreak within their facility that you know sent quite a few patients our way and uh you know those are pretty large facilities i i think the the state is like 1200 inmates and uh, the other civil commitment center has right around 600 uh, uh residents as well mm, wow. that was that was interesting to me because i think it's you see a surge, obviously, in the regular population that you normally serve because of COVID cases, but then you have these other populations that maybe don't necessarily seek medical help that you're now having to serve as well because of this pandemic. Well, and those people probably, you know, are exposed to the guards, you know, there. Right. So yeah. clearly they had people going, you know, from outside coming in and uh, to expose those people because they don't go anywhere, obviously. But yeah. uh, it was a, a concern. Bill, did you see anything like that within your community? Pretty similar. Uh, you know, I mean, anywhere there's congregate type of housing, whether it's in a prison, in a long-term care facility, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ability to social distance and do all those things obviously becomes very limited. And, you know, they're just ripe for that type of spread. 
we saw the same thing here prisons you know, con- you know nursing homes the assisted living facilities were all areas that we saw patients coming from in addition to just the community as a whole and I do think, you know, that post Thanksgiving, I think, quite frankly, a lot of it had to do with Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, we've been into COVID for a while and I think people were looking for a little bit of a break. And, you know, while we talked about the need to social distance and be thoughtful about how we celebrated the holidays, uh, I think it was a little bit problematic and that led to, you know, fairly pronounced surge. Mm-hmm. Bill, this might be a super ignorant question. But are you close to Amish country at all? We are. Uh, in fact, we've got a fairly significant Amish population. Did they seek help during COVID? They do. They're, they use health care. Uh, in fact, one of our critical access hospitals, its Facebook page and website has you know, a car and an Amish buggy as kind of its... Uh, oh, that's cool. You know, that's what they're identified <laughs> Interestingly... We didn't see that many uh, COVID patients from the Amish community. I think, you know, that may speak to somewhat, you know, a little bit more isolated, Yeah. uh, very careful. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've read a few things where, you know, there's actually, they believe some now herd immunity within the Amish community. Interesting. Uh, So that was not an area that we saw uh, differences in terms of presentation. Gotcha. Well, the other theme, too, that we wanted to talk through about potentially changing because of COVID is the idea around telehealth. Mm -hmm. So obviously, anyone that was not experiencing COVID symptoms but had other medical issues, Mm -hmm. we we resorted to telehealth a lot of the time during the pandemic. Um, You know, it seemed like there was an overload. Did you see, did you face a a lower census, first of all? That's that's my first question on non-COVID cases. We did. I mean, we saw people staying away from the hospital for, you know, certainly elective types of procedures, uh, postponing routine mammograms, colonoscopies, uh, the emergency department, you know, the lower level ED visits, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we saw precipitous drop. Was Uh, that patient driven or do you think it was you know, driven in terms of, you know, the, the facility itself? Oh, it was entirely patient driven. I mean, I think people being fearful of coming into the hospital environment, uh, you know, people just fearful of leaving their homes in general, right. Come to the hospital. So that was very real. I mean, I think the telehealth, you know, helped mitigate some of that. Uh, Here at Kahneman Memorial, we've got uh, several pretty robust telehealth programs, uh, specifically around neurology and stroke care mm-hmm. with some of the outlying facilities. So we had a fair amount of experience with it, uh, but we were able to extend it into our primary care offices. And a lot of people really liked the notion of seeing their physician. Uh, and quite frankly, it was more convenient for them. You don't yeah. have to get in a car and come into the office. Oh, for sure. Now, I think the flip side is there are certain things, and this is what I've heard from the physicians, that clearly you do need to be seen in the office mm-hmm. and how you balance the two. Yeah, I think the other thing that the telehealth pointed out is uh, maybe a longer-term infrastructure 
uh, issue. And this is certainly true for a lot of rural areas is just access to, you know, broadband and high speed internet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of rural places don't have it. So right. the ability to make a telehealth visit work in those environments is challenging. Right. Yeah. It's like, do you hop on a computer or do you go to the office? <laughs> Well, you know, for some of the docs, it was great because they didn't have to go into the office. They could do it from home mm -hmm. uh, and it worked well. We saw the same thing. I, you know, I've, I've gone on record as saying COVID-19 was the greatest ER diversion program we've ever had. Uh, <laughs> our ER volume for, you know, the what I'll call non-emergent things really dropped significantly uh, during the pandemic. Um, that makes sense. You know, we've We've always known that telemedicine was a good vehicle. And as we've moved mm -hmm. through this, the question was that none of the payers really wanted to pay for a telemedicine. And especially in the rural communities to get, you know, specialty consults uh, uh, to your patients. Uh, it really works well. And uh, we also have the telestroke and teleneurology programs. And uh, and that's huge when, uh, you know, we've got quite a few uh uh, stroke protocols that, you know, we can get them into the CT almost immediately and right. as quick as we can and get that information to the neurologist. And we have the telemedicine cart, as we call it, uh, so that the neurologist in Sarasota can examine the patient and, you know, based on that and then what he sees on the CT, you know, we can, you know, if we have to airlift them to the, to the big hospital, we can. Mm. And then, you know, and obviously if we need to give them one of the clockbusters, we can do that too. We can do TPA here as well. Mm. So that's really a, a, a good, good thing. And then, you know, we've utilized uh, a couple of the other, the telemedicine for the primary care. Mm -hmm. um, we also uh, uh, utilize, we have a couple of physicians in the community that are uh, proponents of the direct primary care, which is sort of the concierge type uh, facility where you pay a membership fee gotcha. and uh, oh, you I don't pay that. anything mm -hmm. through when you go to the physician mm -hmm. and they even utilize the telemedicine. And, you know, I think uh, patients like it because they, you know, a lot of times uh, in the past when you were sick and you'd call the doctor's office, they'd say, well, we could see in three days. Yes. So, right. mm. You know, it's, that's, that's not the answer a patient wants to, to hear. And so, you know, being able to say, well, I can have the doctor call you via, you know, some type of uh, video call mm -hmm. in an hour or so is a much better outcome. And, you know, and obviously a lot of it is can be done by, uh, you know, some of the things. And obviously the doctors know when they need to see the patient. Right. Right. They're and, trained on, on when to do that. Yeah. So they can at least make that judgment call immediately. Is, is, help, is telehealth cheaper to the patient or is it the same cost? Telehealth is, uh, I think the, the payers are paying uh, a fee. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but, uh, you know, I think Medicare is paying, treating it just like a regular office visit. Okay. And that does vary somewhat by payer. I mean, I think from a patient's perspective, you know, there's a convenience factor and there's a reduced mm -hmm. cost at some level. Forget what they're paying the practice, but, you know, just the, the travel time and yeah. gas cost and things yep. like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a, I mean, it does save the patient on that side of things. Or if they have to pay someone to transport them, maybe they don't And have that's, someone. you know, very real for a lot of patients. It is, yeah. right. So what percentage do you, 
do you guys think are, you know, regular inpatient visits versus telemedicine? Is it pretty even or? I would, you know, telemedicine is still fairly low, but I do think it, I think that will increase over time. Mm. Uh, you know, Vince's point earlier on telehealth, you know, a specialty consult, you know, in a more rural setting that may not have that specialist on site. Yeah. Uh, it's a great way to improve access. Uh, and I think that's where you'll see it adopted. There are still some regulatory, uh, and this varies from state to state, regulatory hurdles that will need to take place in addition to the reimbursement side. Mm. Uh, but I, you know, that's, I think, one thing that is clearly here to stay. Do you anticipate that increasing or staying the same as it is now? It's going to increase. You think it will? Yeah. Like mm. what, what percentage would you guess? Boy, that's a hard question. I know. I know. It's pretty hard. You know, know, I think a lot will depend on, quite frankly, where you are. Yeah. Uh, You know, some states have really pushed telehealth. Uh, I worked previously in North Carolina, and they've done a great job in eastern North Carolina of, uh, through grants, pushing behavioral health into primary care offices and emergency departments that did not have a psychiatrist on staff. Oh, you know, and in those scenarios, the, the utilization was significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the hospital I was at, you know, every behavioral health patient that came into that ED was getting a telehealth consult. Right. You know, and that would be, I mean, that could be, you know, hundreds of patients in a month. Wow. Right. Well, you know, you brought up the the mental health piece of it. That was something I wanted to talk to through recruiting and just shifting gears here back to your staff. I know you had mentioned when we talked before, Bill, that there's this PTSD, frankly, of your of your employees, and you think that that that's going to be more prevalent in the coming months. Do you want to maybe elaborate on that a little more? Yeah, I mean, I think resiliency for all of us coming out of COVID mm-hmm. or during COVID. You know, we all felt it at some level, you know, the things that we like to do outside of work that we couldn't do. Something as simple as going to dinner. So Mm -hmm. if you've got that toll that it took on all of us, Mm -hmm. add to that the the stresses of being a caregiver, you know, through the pandemic and and having to deal with the challenges, you know, the number of patients dying and you know, the isolation that these patients felt because you couldn't, they couldn't have family members yeah. or visitors. You yeah. know, that takes an emotional toll on the staff. Yeah. And you know, I think we're going to see it manifest itself in a number of ways. One of them is the true PTSD. And I don't think we'll see that, you know, maybe for several months, you know, six, 12 months, just like you know, somebody who's been deployed in a combat zone, you don't see PTSD from day one when they get home. You know, there's right. that delayed impact. Right, exactly. Uh, but I, I think resiliency is a huge issue. Uh, most important thing is, A, recognizing that it's out there. And unfortunately, in healthcare, we have a tendency to just say power through it. I can manage this when, no, you may not be able to. Yeah. Being able to provide resources for our team uh, so that they can seek help and that, that it's okay to seek help. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And when, when it comes to recruiting, I mean, we, Beck and I, we talk to administrators and stuff all the time, all over the country. And one of the main concerns is recruiting staff, right? Whether it's your hourly within the facility, you know, on the support services side, or it's the clinical side, or especially nurses. And, you know, did you, have you guys seen, obviously kind of following what we were saying, Bill, uh, you know, the PTSD factor coming into play, which I agree with you, I think is extremely real and probably will start manifesting itself in the coming months, if not years. But um, so Vince, you being, you know, in the smaller, more rural community, how did you and your facility battle that? Did you see like a large, did you see, you know, several nurses maybe, you know, not choosing to come back or if you had, you needed additional staff, how did you guys combat that? Well, one of the things is it's 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 very real. I think that you know if you go into a healthcare profession, you you, you know you're a caring person, and mm-hmm. you know you hear the the stories of the couple that you know were married for fifty, fifty five, sixty years, and you know the the wife is you know looking at the glass at their mm-hmm. spouse for the last time, and you know, those are powerful messages that you know it, I, I agree with Bill that you know they're we've got to provide some sort of behavioral health for our staff, uh, you know, and we, we try to do that through our employee health. We have options. We have a bit of a behavioral health program here as well. So they have access to those resources with the, our, you know, our clinical social workers as well as the psychiatrists. And uh, so you know, those are available, but, you know, as we move forward, I think that, you know, we saw a lot of uh, changeover in that, uh, we lost quite a few nurses to, uh, you know, the travel assignments where the, uh, you know, there was some really uh, enticing uh, revenue streams uh, to get because nurses were really in hot, a hot commodity and just like uh, anything else this day and age. And so, you know, we had to backfill with, uh, we had to hire some people and give, uh, you know, some uh what I would call crisis pay to some of our, mm. our really good employees to keep them here. Right. So it was a, an interesting time, but, uh, you know, but, you know, our always is our thought is, you know, we need to provide, uh, you know, whatever resources we can to ensure that our employees have the, you know, access to the resources they need. Mm-hmm. Did you think, do you think that might be, um, you know, kind of retaining, the healthcare staff or, you know, whether it be nurses or whatnot, do you think that's going to be a challenge kind of even in the next year or so? I think so. I think that uh, right now there are some opportunities there because, you know, there was a a nursing shortage. I think there might be now more people interested in going into nursing. Uh, I know I just actually read something that this morning that the University of South Florida is expanding their nursing Mm -hmm. uh, school or their class uh, uh, for the nursing school, which is a, is a good thing. Yeah. And, uh, but I think this might have precipitated because I think right now, uh, you know, healthcare workers, you know, there's a good feeling about the service they provided right. during the pandemic. And so I think yeah. uh, it might have reinvigorated people going into that line of, uh, you know, as a career. Yeah, they want to be a part of something to make a difference, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I would concur with Vince. You know, we've seen, We've got a number of, uh, we've got a hospital-based school of nursing here, as well as several four-year programs. And the interest in the nursing profession has certainly increased. I think part of the challenge is, though, on the flip side is 
you've got some folks retiring early. You've got some folks moving away from bedside nursing to other types of uh, nursing careers that maybe don't have some of the challenges of working in a 24-7, 365. Like administrative or things like that? Administrative, going to work for insurance company or, you know, the operating room nurse that moves from Mm. the hospital to a freestanding ambulatory surgery center where it's Monday through Friday, yeah. you know, daylight hours right. only. Yeah, I think the the one of the things coming out of COVID is I think it has amplified some of the the lifestyle choices that uh, everybody yes. makes. Uh, but you know, I think it's more prevalent in those uh, sectors of our economy and healthcare being front and center that you know aren't a Monday through Friday nine to five yeah. type right. of job. Right. And we've seen it here in Johnstown with some of the manufacturing concerns, you know, that run second and third shifts. Mm-hmm. You know, they're struggling with the same thing from a recruitment perspective. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, I, I've seen it. I mean, we see it all over the country. It seems like a recruiting in any industry is really tough right now. Yeah. And Vince, when you said more people are doing like that, that South Florida school had a higher nursing class this year. I wonder if it's too, because so many people got laid off this last year and nursing is a job that it's like, wow, that's always needed. And people yeah. are kind of shifting. That's, that's probably true. I think that uh, the, the need for good health care was never more evident than the last, uh, you know, 16, 18 months. And uh, so I think, you know, it's reinvigorated uh, people wanting to take a career in healthcare care. Right. They realized that, you know, we didn't uh, really suffer any of the layoffs or, or whatnot that other, uh, you know, previously, um, you know, careers had provided. I know uh, a lot of people uh, ended up working from home for a long time and then mm-hmm. you know, eventually were laid off. And, you know, it's tragic uh, when you're the breadwinner of a family and have, you know, some circumstances way beyond your control cause you to, you know, lose your livelihood. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Do you think it'll stay like that in the healthcare realm what, where people will continue to try and switch? I think for a while, I think it's cyclical and then we'll, you know, see something else come in. But, uh, you know, I think some of our nurses are, you know, going towards, you know, a lot of our good nurses are going to the advanced uh, nurse practitioner, the APRNs, and, uh, and then also, you know, into the other, as uh, Bill said, uh, you know, either case management, which is, you know, we have a, a lot of nurses going to case management. A lot of nurses go into the, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a nurse that uh, can really has really good computer skills is invaluable in this, uh, you know, in an MIS department when, uh, you know, the electronic medical records and building all those interfaces and whatnot are, you know, that's what we do day in and day out now. Those are just invaluable to have. Because you don't want a computer person building something for a nurse. Because, (laughs) you know, it doesn't work. Yeah. And you don't want to have, especially you don't want to have a computer person building something for a doctor. You need a doctor (laughs) building something, you know, that knows some computers to build it for you. Yeah. Otherwise, no one's happy. Right. Right. I was wondering about that when you were talking about telehealth. I, I was thinking of how much of a learning curve was there for some physicians yeah. having to utilize those programs. 
you know, I think on some of those things, you know, physicians have become more and more tech yeah. savvy as we all have, you know, the ability to use, you know, their, their smartphone mm-hmm. uh, as a means of communication. And, uh, you know, I think to Vince's point though, you know, there are a lot of complexities in healthcare that you really need to have clinicians as part of that planning and implementation process. And, you know, information technology is a huge mm-hmm. one. Uh, is if you don't do it the right way, all the things that you would hope to gain from an EMR, you're going right. to lose. Yeah. Right. All the different layers, all the different steps, all that has to be mapped out. And like uh, Vince, you had mentioned, IT doesn't know healthcare and vice versa. So <laughs> you need to make sure that the healthcare professionals kind of driving the bus on that, I would imagine. Yeah, just to make sure it flows properly, you know. Right. It's- right. Just because they can draw it on a piece of paper and say, this ought to work, you know, let's yeah. make sure it works in practice. And, uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's a never ending thing, you know, yeah. and every time you need to connect one system to another system, you have to uh, purchase in what they call an interface uh, from your main EMR system to whatever you want to add on to that. And that creates problems with security as well as, mm-hmm. uh, uh you know, basically the expense and, you know, obviously some of the hospitals have been hacked and had, you know, with the ransomware and everything. Yeah. And right. That's a big uh, concern. And I know uh, uh, our MIS department is always, you know, sending out uh, different reminders about don't open this, uh, mm. you know, don't do that. And, uh, you know, make sure we maintain all the security that we have in place. Yeah. Right. Did you guys see, I mean, even in like your cafeterias and stuff, moving to more technology and less paper, less area, like touch zones, you know, where you'd add like QR codes for menus or things like that in your facilities at all during COVID? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, you know, just, you know, even something as simple as how we check out in the cafeteria, it's scan your own item, you know, little things like that. And you think that's here to stay, right? Oh, yeah. absolutely. That's such a convenience too. I mean, that's the thing, you know, like a, you you try to look at the silver lining and things and maybe that's one of them is things are always change and evolve, but it seems like COVID's really kind of pushed it to go probably in some areas quicker than was expected <laughs> or thought to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, one of our uh, biggest uh, dissatisfiers right now is when we closed our salad, we had a great salad bar. And we've still not, you know, I don't know if salad bars are ever going to come back. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, unless you have an attendant there that's going to, you know, with gloves on, it's going to portion stuff out for you. But yeah. uh, we're still working on our, what we're going to do with regards to our salad bar. Yeah. <laughs> yep. We brought it back with an attendant. Yeah. Like that. It was too much demand. <laughs> really I would be there every day. You know, one of the little things that we did that was a huge staff satisfier is, you know, as during the pandemic, it was hard sometimes for people to get to a grocery store Mm -hmm. or whatever. So our food services department started uh, doing things like get your milk, your loaf of bread, you know, some of the basic staples that when people would come through the cafeteria, they could pick up that loaf of bread that, you know, jug of milk to take home. Huge yeah, satisfaction. And that's something we're probably yeah. going to keep. Just, you know, the convenience yeah, factor. Yeah, exactly. 
that would certainly help if they're there and then can't, like you said, get to the grocery store. It's like, oh, wait, I'll just run down to the cafeteria, get some milk. Do you guys have coffee cream or two? <laughs> grab and yeah, go meals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do grab and goes. That's fine. Yep. So just switching gears here a little bit. Um, so we all know about how COVID has affected supply chain models, right? And service models. I mean, in terms of, I mean, Vince, I think you mentioned it earlier about the PPE aspect. So have you guys had to kind of reevaluate your your supply chain models in terms of, you know, getting supplies and things of that nature? Or how did you how did you adjust to that last year? And are you still seeing, you know, after effects of that now? Well, we worked with our supplier. Uh, you know, a lot of times what happens is you get built into, like if you're ordering, you know, four dozen of this on a regular basis, mm-hmm. then they sort of limited you to the four dozen. And during the pandemic, we probably needed eight dozen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had to manipulate the, the uh, uh, staffing mo- or supply chain model. And then we would look for other resources. I mean, we bought quite a bit of stuff on uh Amazon just to kind of uh, make ends meet. And then fortunately, uh, we ended up getting uh, quite a few uh, uh, cases, I should say, of uh, face shields from uh, Ford Motor Company. And then, uh, and then the Harbor Freight uh, delivered a bunch of uh, gloves and uh, face masks or shields from, uh, from their uh, resources. So, you know, that was pleasantly in our CFO graduated from Notre Dame, and I guess Notre Dame had uh, some sort of resorts where they were making face shields. So we even got some face shields from uh, Notre oh, Dame that included cool. these little uh, uh, wooden coins that were pieces of old uh, bleacher seats from the stadium. Oh, that's <laughs> really cool. Did they were, did they have the Notre Dame emblem? Because let's face it, they did. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Of course. Marketing. <laughs> hey, I'm a Notre Dame grad, so. Are you? Oh, are you, Bill? There you go. Oh, <laughs> did you get some face shields, too? No, we did not. We were really lucky with supply chain. We did get a, a fair number from Ford Motor Company, and many thank yous and kudos to Ford for doing that. You know, we had to conserve a lot on the supply chain. You know, and some of that conservation was really just around the uncertainty you know, in terms of, you know, how that was going to look, you know, week, two weeks, three weeks down the road. Uh, you know, we did regular uh, forecast as a company to say where we might have supply chain issues. You know, to me, that's one of the things, though, that I think COVID maybe pointed out in the bigger picture is the fragility of some of our supply chain, uh, you know, for quite frankly, some things that are pretty basic, you right. know, mask, you know, PPE gowns, things like that. Um, Gloves. You know, and, you know, I think that's going to be something that, you know, as we get back to normal, you know, at a, at a larger national level really needs to be evaluated and how can we, you know, prevent that from being an issue in the future? Yeah. I know we received uh, from the federal depository probably uh, mid-March, we received one box of uh, N95 masks that had expired in 2007. 
and uh, that was all we received from the federal depository. So I agree with Bill that they probably really need to look at uh, creating a, a better system for in the future. And then obviously you always got to deal, you know, we deal with it every summer when there's the hurricanes is that, uh, you know, the profiteers come out of the, uh, the woodwork and, uh, you know, there really needs to be probably some sort of uh, federal mandates with regards to that because it gets ridiculous. Yeah. I know, you know, there was, we were getting emails from people wanting to sell, you know, a mask for, you know, five bucks a mask. Oh, yeah. Like that, you know, which is just terrible. Because how much are they normally for you? Before the pandemic, they were like 50 cents a piece. For your GPO? It was like that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. Yeah, Vince, I'm in, I'm in Houston. So I'm in the hurricane zone too. And I know exactly what you're talking about. When, you know, it seems like, to your point, that this may make things look at not only redoing the supply chain model, but thinking ahead and maybe stockpiling some items, even for the future, you know, whether it be on the federal level or the state level or, you know, the hospital level, I don't even know if that's doable, but just, you know, thinking out loud on things to, to be maybe prepared. I mean, I know like here in Houston, we always get ready for hurricane season. We make sure we have bottled water and we have plenty of batteries and we, you know, this and that. So, I'm not saying hospitals don't already do that. I know y'all do, but I'm thinking on a grander scheme, like you said, you got one box of N95s that expired 10, uh, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? You know, that doesn't help. <laughs> well, I think, you know, we see that. I think it varies from state to state. You know, we were fortunate in Pennsylvania that uh, the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Association had done some of that stockpiling and, we were able to tap into it if we needed to. We were fortunate. Uh, we really didn't need to, but some other providers did. Uh, and, and just being thoughtful about how we prepare for emergency management situations. Mm-hmm. You know, I think sometimes that's where folks that live in the hurricane zones maybe have an advantage. You, know? uh, <laughs> you, you have to think through some of those things a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, but I do think there's there's that larger piece that just goes back to, you know, part of the thing with the pandemic, unlike a hurricane, you know, a hurricane, you, you have the, the issue, it may be with you for a month, maybe, whereas, you know, the pandemic was ongoing. Right. You know, it was, right. you know, and, and that's what was very different. Uh, you know, I've never had a disaster, you know, situation where the command center was stood up more than a couple of weeks. You know, and right. here it's, you know, we it's been stood up for over a year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, there's lots of like heartfelt stories and then stories about supplies, things like that, that were covered by the media during this last year. But is there anything I'm, I'm just curious from a personal standpoint, was there anything that was, you know, highlighted in the media that you were or not highlighted in the media that you were surprised about being someone that actually lived through it? Well, early on, I, you know, I think uh, the, the development of the testing devices is, was miraculous. Uh, you know, early on uh, when this, we have basically had the state testing facility, uh, you know, and it would take, you know, you would have someone would come in with symptoms You'd swab them and send the 
the uh, sample or the specimen off to, we sent ours to Tampa, mm-hmm. you know, and it would be, you know, days, you know, sometimes a, a whole week, you know, where this guy's quarantined, you know, he's quarantined for a week, comes back negative. Well, you know, the, the, you know, and by, let's say last, probably, you know, I know that uh, maybe by October, uh, you know, like Sarasota Memorial, which is one of our big tertiary hospitals close by, they had a, a device that, you know, we were getting our results back in, you know, 24 hours or less. And then by November, we had our own test, the Abbott devices that, you know, we were able to, you know, do the PCR test, which is at the time the gold standard within, you know, we were getting results back in less than an hour. So that kind of, you know, true implementation of how everybody worked together to get those things um, moving so quickly was was really miraculous, uh, you know, just as much, just like the vaccines. I mean, typically the, the vaccine takes years to develop and, you know, now, you know, to get that and get those many people vaccinated in such a short period of time, you know, a lot of people, you know, the coordination between a lot of different uh, factions was just incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that just a lot of people that deserve a lot of credit for getting the end result to the people. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think when you take that big step back, you know, those were just incredible things that, uh, you know, from just a pure clinical technology perspective. You know, the one thing that I loved within the media, uh, and this, I guess, varied a little bit, but, you know, just the, you know, how the folks that work in healthcare were being viewed in a positive light. I mean, you know, healthcare is extremely rewarding, but it's not easy. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure people always understood that part of it. And I think they do today. Yeah. Agreed. Well, one thing we like to always end on um, is a fun question. So I, and this question, <laughs> this one's pretty silly. And if you can't find this one or figure this one out, we have a second question too. But the first question we have is, do you have a favorite dad joke or a joke that you say all the time that maybe your kids or your nieces or nephews or grandkids are like, okay. Favorite dad joke. <laughs> That's a tough one. And if I, you want to, if you want to call a friend, I can give you a second one. <laughs> <laughs> the one I liked the late, this recently was something about, uh, you know, uh, a seagull flies over the ocean and, you know, but if he flew over the bay, he'd be a bagel. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> you. I like that. I like that one too. The other question. I was going to say, what's the second question? Okay. <laughs> Bill's like, no way. Um, okay. If you had to teach a class on one thing, what would you teach? Oh, wow. We stumped him again, Becca. No, you know, it's funny. I've, I love to teach because I years ago uh, coached travel soccer and uh-huh. you know, that was every practice was teaching. You know, I think, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, within the healthcare setting, I, you know, I think I'd probably be going back to, you know, something along positivity and, you know, although it's very complex and complicated, uh, the importance of resilience and, you know, enjoying life and 
carving out time for, you know, family and what's really important. Uh, yeah, so something along that line of, you know, how to manage your time so that you can get work done, but also get the things that are important outside of work done and completed. Yeah, I love that. And I love to hear that from leaders, too, because I think it is such a cultural thing within corporate America, you know, and it's got to be driven from the top. Well, and leaders need to do it better. Yeah. I mean, that's so. Exactly. Work-life balance. Huge. That's very yeah. true. Yeah, it is. And hopefully that's something that sticks around post-COVID. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, thank you guys. We so appreciate you joining us today and for your insight and the humor and the realism and understand, you know, it was just really interesting learning the different perspectives from the different communities and your different facilities. So thank you so much for being here. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. I really appreciated how candid they were on a lot of topics, especially the media one. I mean, that was just a random question that popped in my mind. And I had always been curious about that, right? Because Mm -hmm. people that are reporting it aren't actually living it all the time. And so I I really loved what they had to say about that. Yeah. And I loved how they talked about, you know, the healthcare workers getting their due and because we all know it's not, it's hard and Mm -hmm. empathy plays a big role and it's a special person that goes through that. But they also, I mean, they also are going to feel the effects, you know, mentally, like we talked about in the very beginning. And I mean, that's, It was just interesting. I just love learning about it, especially from, like you said, leaders, right? I mean, they lived it every day. It was their job to make sure, I mean, they're CEOs, so they had to make sure that their staff was safe and they had, you know, their facilities had everything they needed and to try to make adjustments as they could. And yeah, I, I thought it was really cool. I did too. Well, thanks y'all for, for joining us for this candid conversation about the impact of COVID on hospitals. Yeah. And, you know, thanks again, Vince and Bill for joining us and thank you for listening. We hope you've learned some insight today like we did. Be sure to follow us and tune in for our next episode with another healthcare leader, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for more tips in healthcare, follow the HHS blog at www.hhs1.com. Until next time.